Nine minutes past three o'clock and I promise you beautiful music throughout the show. If you've just joined in, welcome to the show. It is Crossroads with Akona. I'm going to be with you up until 6 p.m. I opened up the show with Zama Job and Magic and earlier on I promised that I have the guest online and she's ready to just engage in conversation with us. We are switching things up a bit today. So in our program, we are going straight into the topic of the day. Uh, Dr. Yandisan Nangashe is waiting for us and ready to be in conversation with the topic that we have for you today. And then afterwards, we will go straight into the normal uh, agenda of the show, where we go straight into our healthy topics, uh, trending affairs, and close it off with the media space. So on standby, it is Yandisan Mangashe. Dr. Yandisan Mangashe is um, a research fellow in food regulation and governance for population nutrition at the School of Regulation and Global Governance. She has expertise in public health and social sciences with research interests in population nutrition, food regulation, food media, food marketing, and governance. She holds a bachelor's degree in occupational therapy obtained at Wirtz University, a master's degree in public health from the University of KwaZulu-Natal, and a PhD in social sciences at University of Antwerp in Belgium. So that is a lot of accolades. Welcome to the show, Yandi. Hi, Akona. Thank you very much. Um, and hello to your listeners as well. I am so glad that I could get hold of you and I understand that it's very late where you are. You said it was uh, 11 uh, p.m. Yes, it's uh, 12 minutes past 11. Um, so yeah. So I want to know, after all these praises and what you have achieved academically, do you still regard yourself as a non-academic? Um, I regard myself, um, I, oh, okay, I'm no longer a clinician given okay. that I've worked in a hospital in such a long time. But also, I wouldn't want to put myself, uh, make myself as a purely academic. Um, I would like to be an operational academic. So just do operational research. So research that is problem-focused. Okay, let's solve this for five years. And uh, just like some operational and practical and problem-based research. Um, but yeah, I am sort of an academic, but not fully there <laughs> it doesn't sink in like you must own yeah, it maybe it doesn't sink in <laughs> <laughs> you know what uh i do understand what you're saying because uh most academics sometimes fall into the trap of feeling detached from the real operations in outside the universities and become too theoretical Yes, I think that's where I'm at. That's where I, I really don't want to be um, to be th very theoretical and get detached from what is happening. I don't want to theorize about things that I don't experience and produce research that is not relevant or that can only be read by people that I work with. And um, so that doesn't help at all. Well, that is not what I want to do personally. Yeah. So now you moved from South Africa 
and you moved straight to Antwerp in Belgium to pursue your studies in uh, your PhD studies. And then after that, you are now based in Australia at the Australian National University uh, as a postdoctoral uh, research fellow there, if I understand correctly. Yeah. Now, yeah. my interest is that during uh, this period, you've been traveling a lot and I saw that you were saying you have traveled over or almost over 20 countries and you are still counting. <laughs> that is <laughs> So now my main interest is that how um, is your global experience academically and in leisure when you look at all these countries you've been to and all these universities that you've been studying at? Okay, um, I will start with leisure because it's the easiest to do. Because <laughs> I, like, um, I like fun. Um, in terms of leisure, I think um, it's definitely been mind-opening. Um, things that I wouldn't do in South Africa, for example, I would, I would have, okay, maybe we once did sleep at a backpackers in South Africa, but yeah. it would not be something that you, I would routinely do or like getting to a place, uh, getting to a, a city you don't know, um, not hiring a car, um, using public transport because for once the public transport is um, efficient. So just like um, figuring life out in different cities where they don't speak your language. So you are in Rome, they speak Italian or you are in France, um, in Paris, they speak French and everybody uses public transport. So you don't have the option of just Ubering. So you literally have to get immersed into this world that you are not familiar with because in South Africa, if I go to Cape Town, I Uber from the airport. Or you hire a car. Oh, you hire a car. So you get there, nobody hires a car, there's buses, but then you have to learn how to follow maps, how to follow tram A, how to use the underground train. And um, so I think for me, it opened my mind about different cultures and just like a whole new world of things that maybe at home they may look um, like something intimidating. Yeah, or something like, broke people would do um, like those things but uh, when you get there it's like oh okay everybody takes a bus here it's normal it's not it's not for poor people it's not for poor people it's for everyone yeah so I think for me there was like um, in terms of leisure there was the most um, mind-opening thing and um, so that was in Europe and then coming to Australia which is a little bit like South Africa so I've had to also flip back to being like okay now I need a car oh okay now oh. people like use cars here it's no it's not just like people don't don't think of uh, public transport is not the first thing that comes to mind when people move from point a to point b which was different in Europe you get there you think bus train and mm. then car third or fourth and here it's just like oh very close to like to home so yeah so I think yeah, different cultures, I think, and just adjusting to to all this. Um, Your new lifestyle. Yeah. So in terms of leisure, I think mainly it's been it's been um, just 
knowing how to get into a city and navigate it and adjust to their way of doing things without being extremely shocked or saying, no, this is how we did in South Africa. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to sleep in a three-star <laughs> because back home, I wouldn't sleep in a place like this. And academically, what would you say your experience is or was? Um, academically, first of all, I think um, I think South African universities are on par with um, other universities. That's um, right. Yeah, yeah. I think we're doing very well. So, like transitioning from from South African universities into um, global universities, both in 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 Belgium and here, I haven't. I didn't feel like oh my gosh, like I just came from. Uh, a country in Africa and I must learn or adjust um, but I was like pretty fine to cope like I was not um, over stretching myself or anything and it was, and it was mainly from what I was taught in the universities that I studied at in South Africa so um, academically that was the first thing I observed and um, the second thing that I observed that I think maybe could be beneficial for South Africa is that like a lot of the universities they like especially in Europe they're very like equity focused or equity oriented like they don't make it hard for students to pass and very compassionate as well like people are given a lot of chances to do things over and you, over what you're trying to say is that you do not have that feeling that if you are a person of color you have to work twice as hard to get the same achievements as your um, Caucasian counterparts. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, and also universities are cheap. And like, so there's just like a lot of, um, a lot of things that in South Africa were made hard for us that, okay, you would get to vets and be like, I don't belong here. And you feel like that the whole time you're there and it's difficult. Transport is difficult. You only you, you have to get a certain percentage to qualify for a sub. For example, at my previous university where I was doing my PhD, everybody who failed got a chance to rewrite. Mm. And I, it made me think that what was the reason for us to block a person who had 39% and a person who had 40% for them not to be able to rewrite? Like, where is the harm in giving everybody mm. a chance to rewrite an exam they failed? So I felt like... Um, South African universities could maybe be more compassionate, especially given our history and how people in general struggle. And, and to understand and bridge uh, that gap from coming from, pre from disadvantaged areas to now a big city and all of that, and transitioning into the new culture in the university setup. Yes, yes, yes. So I think that, that 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 in South Africa I felt like we don't have that like our universities lacked uh, like I felt I feel like they lack empathy. It's a dog eat dog world, you survive and you survive, you don't survive. And yeah, so I think there's a lot we could learn from other universities in terms of that compassionate and you just whip you where as a lecturer or as a teacher, you can just genuinely want your students to do well, not to have the most difficult course that nobody passes. Yeah, I think there's yeah. areas of, of improvement. I totally agree with you. Now, I want to know with your global experience academically and socially or culturally, what is your perspective of COVID-19 pandemic? 
Hmm. <laughs> um, my perspective of um, I think it's thrown everyone off guard. Like it was not something that um that was expected by anyone, and I think it's also generally exposed problems that we already had. Um, as much as it's a new disease, but literally everything that it has, it has, it has shown it has just like exposed to what we already knew for example uh people in some villages not having water to wash hands and COVID 19 (laughs) requires people to wash their hands and also um people not having space to socially distance because we've had a water problem we've had a housing problem and um and also people people the people that are dying the most are people with diabetes and hypertension and those diseases have been around and they have been killing people all along so i think for me the biggest um high not i wouldn't say highlight but what covid 19 has highlighted has highlighted that we need to solve the problems that we've already had. So you can have the best health system ever and have the best prevention measures. But then if people don't have water, they can't socially distance and you don't have primary health care to prevent these diseases. You Every time there's a disease like COVID-19, um, we'll still suffer the most because we don't have the basics. So I, I think, think the COVID-19 uh, precautions assumed that the basics are readily available and accessible. So it is basic activity to wash your hands. It is basic to expect people to socially distance. But now when we faced with implementation of it, it is not as basic as we thought it was because there are, like you said, villages, uh, disadvantaged areas, townships that do not have that luxury of socially distancing, that luxury of having water accessible yet it was just assumed and expected that it is readily available yeah exactly and i mean even our health system um in hospitals they would run out of linen like long long before COVID 19 and then now you expect the health the same health system to have enough ppe but then just a few months ago they didn't have linen like bed sheet and pillows and um so it's yeah so then i think mostly like covid 19 has exposed a lot of cracks mm. in already existing systems and um yeah i do hope that when moving forward we go back and say okay this is what happened and we really need to fix this thing mm. yeah that's my yeah, no, I totally agree with that. So, Yandi, as well-traveled as you are, and uh, I noticed that with all the research content that you put out there, you always link it back to South African context. Why is that? Um, I think because I'm South African, like, it's my <laughs> home, and <laughs> that's the most, uh, the, the simplest explanation. But also... Um, wanting to be problem focused and or like to be solution focused um south african problems come naturally to me like um as a clinician i trained in south africa even though i did my phd overseas but uh my undergrad was in south africa my 
university was in South Africa and I worked a few years in, in South Africa. So um, I have like, every time when I read about food advertising, for example, uh, for me, what clicks is, oh my gosh, like the first time I went on a diet, I, I saw a special K ad that told me that I would lose five kilos in 14 days or whatever that ad says. I think so I remember then, um, that ad. Yes, with a lady that was pulling up her own jeans. And as a teenager, you see that you're like, oh, okay, this works. And I mean, that is, so then um, just, I always take it back to, to, to myself growing up. I think of when I read about food advertising or sp sponsoring um, of sports, I think about the Baker's mini cricket. I think about Milo sponsoring school boards. Like I think about all these things and they're in my context. I think about how much food advertising I was exposed to myself without even being aware of it. Like you, the first KFC ad I saw, I remember the first conflicts ad, the biscuits. So it's just like, um, so South Africa is relatable and um, the problems or the problems that I'm researching now are things that are big problems right now in South Africa. Mm. So for me, it's very easy that even though I'm working outside South Africa, it's very easy to just like um, to always think of South Africa or how would this be applied at home? And also, if I were to ever go back, um, if I go back home, I can always be part of the solution. I like that. Yeah, so I don't think I'd ever be okay with just doing research in um, a high-income country and mm -hmm. be okay and never do anything um, related. Like, I don't want to be those academics as well that, okay, you work with rich countries, you get, you have money to conduct research, you do all high-income country-relevant stuff and never and nothing on africa which is what academia is now like which is what we're struggling with now is that you will want something on africa any country in africa and there'll be nothing so i don't want to fall into the country as that so now uh recently you when we're talking about food and food advertising you published uh, your opinion on news 24 uh, talking about the regulation of junk food so I wanted to know that um, around at that time when you were publishing the, the article, it was April and we were just uh, got into the lockdown uh, fever and South Africa was, I think, at level five lockdown. So what did you observe that made you feel that it is necessary to, 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 to share those opinions about junk food? Um, okay, the, the the article I had written it right before COVID nineteen took over, but then I was like, okay, should I publish? Should I publish now? Publish it now because it's not COVID nineteen related. At the time, I didn't think it was related, but then, like in retrospect, I know now that it was very much related because mm -hmm. I mean, we immediately locked down. Everybody went for food. We all started eating more, started cooking more, make posting pictures on social media. And of course, um, advertising companies are going to take advantage of that and try to 
link whatever advertising they do to what we're doing. But in terms of that article, that article came from, uh, so when I started working here, I started doing research on food advertising. Yes. And then I wondered about what is happening in South Africa. Do we have laws? Because I remember Aaron Mutualeti wanted to do something about food advertising. So then I started to do a little bit of background research to find out what is happening in South Africa. Do we have such policies? And um, so I did a little bit of research. I saw that there was a policy that was supposed to be there in 2014 that they, were, they would try to not advertise junk food to mm -hmm. children under the age of 12. And that was posted by the Department of Health, by the National Department of Health. And then, um, so it was sent out for public comments. Was but that then no, it wasn't passed. And then I wanted to like to say, okay, this didn't get passed because um, Department of Health, because advertising is communication. So that yes. has to come from the Department of Communication. So health didn't have a jurisdiction over that. So it didn't end up happening. But then it means that kids are still exposed to a lot of advertising and um, in schools um, there's nothing that controls what is on the vending machines on the school on the signboards um, on TV so you get companies pledging that McDonald's can say okay I will not advertise to kids under the age of 12 but and then how do you regulate that Nobody's monitoring them. They're self-monitoring. Exactly. Every year, they can report and say, okay, hey, look at me, guys. This year, I didn't advertise. Okay, I only had one advert that was not so good. So in South Africa right now, we are there. We are at that point where advertising is not regulated at all. Um, and we don't know um, if the Department of Communications will at some point take up the responsibility but the department of health wants to but they don't have a jurisdiction so they mm. can only say they can only maybe control advertising on food boxes because they do have jurisdiction over how food is labeled but they don't I have think... sorry yes yeah. yes i was saying i think the article was very relevant in that um during lockdown you started questioning yourself whether fast foods are unnecessary that whether you can be able to survive without them because uh, at level five lockdown uh, takeouts and fast foods uh, out outlets were not opened and forcing yeah. everyone to start cooking and using fresh ingredients fresh veggies fresh uh, everything without using processed uh, meats processed foods and in in that period people started to realize that it's not as impossible or hard or difficult as we thought it was to come back after work but instead you start planning and be able to plan your meals so that you can be able to afford having a decent meal at the end during and throughout the day yes but um but yeah yes yes yeah. i agree a lot of people okay the first foods were not closed here like um which is a contextual thing mm -hmm. um so i I personally fell back into like junk food during lockdown because I, I was it was easy different emotions and just yeah stressful but um the flip side of that is that now so the the food industry is going to say okay but we lost um a lot of money during the lockdown when you closed us off and um, so you can now bring in a new policy that we have to label our food you have to first let us recover 
So, um, so that's also what COVID-19 will do or what it's already doing is that now governments want all the industries to recover, like economic recovery, because well, I was not, I was out of business for this long, mm. or I lost this much money. So if you bring, if you tell me to label all my food, I'm going to have to spend so much money creating these new labels and blah, 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 blah. It's going to affect my business. So it might stall some, maybe some policies that we're promising or that we're on the pipelines. So we don't know what COVID-19 will do to our to our food populations. So yeah. in South Africa, as well as maybe abroad, uh, who are these regulatory authorities for food? Are they existing uh, or it's something that Department of Health is still working on? Um, so in South Africa, for example, I'll talk about South Africa. Um, our Department of Health is very like progressive. Um, for example, we're the first country to have a law that regulates, um, that told food in the food industry to reduce the salt, the salt content in their food. So they did some research to find out which types of food contribute the most uh, to, to the salt that we eat in our diets. Mm. And it was bread, cereals. And so they took that list of food and they told the industries, okay, from now on, this is the maximum amount of salt you can have and um and this is mandatory this is law so by 2020 all your products all these products should have less salt and that was it was because other countries went like um had negotiations and it was voluntary so the industry could say okay fine yes i will do my bread but south africa made it a law which was really um impressive it's so nice then, to hear that there's uh parts of of um the government that are very progressive, we're not as backwards as we think we are just because we're at the bottom of Africa. No, no, not at all, not at all, not at all. And um, following that, we introduced a sugar tax as well, uh, which was in 2017. And, um, and that's to make people drink, uh, consume less sugar. Because mm. obviously in South Africa, we have the biggest burden of diabetes and high blood pressure in 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 africa and we are in the top even in the world so mm. um so they introduced the sugar tax and um it's the only sugar tax in africa also so um which is very good and um the third thing that is on the pipelines now they're trying to introduce these warning labels on food that is high in sugar fat and salt so these labels are supposed to be just only on unhealthy food and um, to just say high in and so such that a person who cannot read or a person who doesn't know how to speak english just knows that okay whenever it's it has that label it's it high means content that it's high in something and me as a diabetic i must not eat it which is different compared to maybe when you have traffic lights like in australia they have a system of five stars so one star is unhealthy two stars or one star is unhealthy and then five stars is the healthiest but then it's still you still have to interpret it so when you get to the shop you still have to sit and think mm, three stars okay it's, it's okay. So when, when they, if you have warning labels, they just say hi in 
end that tells you so no interpretation no levels of literacy required no language required just that sign and they're only on on unhealthy food um, so that's what they're trying to introduce but we don't know how long it's going to take or how far the industry will fight I think you also highlighted in your article that uh, you made examples with the tobacco laws and alcohol bans. So if we were able to win those regulations, then we should be positive and believe that soon enough we will be able to get some sense of control over the food itself. Yes, yes. I think with, with tobacco, like with, with, with alcohol, I think we're still quite further behind. Like okay. we're very far. Like, uh, but with tobacco, we did quite well. But the thing is like also tobacco is quite easy because smoking is almost optional. But food is not. Like food is... Food it, is can be, it can be deceiving. You will, you will think that you're eating healthy, but just because you're adding that extra dressing you're not eating healthy, but you are deceived or to believe that the salad that you're having is a healthier option, whereas you've added things to it that, that, that will take away the, the, the healthy uh, option, the uh, healthy side of it because you've added oils or fats yeah. that are not desirable to, to the salad itself. So I want to move uh, swiftly to your other article which you published in the Mail and Guardian very recently. Can you tell us about it? Okay. So, so that article was prompted by obviously saying that, okay, a lot of people are dying um, from COVID-19 and a lot of the people that are dying are people with diabetes and high blood pressure. So I thought about, okay, when we thought COVID-19 was, when we first, when we had our first case, we thought, oh my gosh, it's going to kill uh, immunocompromised people. So HIV and TB, they're going to be at risk. And um, it didn't turn out to be the case. Um, it turned out to affect um, people with high blood pressure and um, especially diabetes. So then for, for me, it was, okay, wow. Um, Non-communicable diseases are a problem. And I mean, they've been a problem, but this i think so this that article was like made me think that oh wow these diseases are a problem and um they're not going away and we need to do something about them but then also it was that when you read the news during the lockdown all you read about it was alcohol bans open alcohol open alcohol open tobacco mm -hmm. uh, the the, the the economic impact the restaurant industry is being affected is being affected and then i thought but at the end of the day people are dying and people are literally being dying because of these industries because if you think of alcohol and if you think of alcohol and tobacco and uh, junk food they're literally a combination to diabetes and high blood pressure and all this um, diseases that are risk factors for COVID-19. So these all intersect together. But then what is coming up is the economic impact of COVID-19. So I thought how we frame problems, if we highlight the money the side of things, the money side of things, we, for, we forget the public health side of things. And I mean, 
the industry has money. So obviously they can pay influencers on Instagram to say, hashtag save my livelihood. They can pay for all these campaigns. But Minister William Kize does not have money to pay. Like the Department of Health doesn't have money to pay um, to do campaigns and, and do this. So then it is up to us as society to be aware that this is what the industry will do but we must keep public health at the forefront because it's a public health crisis and as much as um the alcohol bans and everything are not permanent solutions but they are a problem and i um, think yeah i think because we found ourselves or see ourselves as healthy and then we easily fell into the trap those who are immunocompromised must stay at home and protect themselves and there's no need to close the entire industry because the economy is, the, is going to collapse and we strongly believe that the stopping the sale of alcohol and tobacco is really going to collapse the economy and i don't know whether that is entirely true or not and you are right in your article when you're saying that in doing that and focusing on all the economic activities we've sort of neglected the impact on health especially the non-communicable diseases you're mentioning, such as diabetes and hypertension. Yes, um, we really did. And um, I think, but we also have to be aware that whenever there's going to be a new policy, and I mean, right now, they will probably be trying to clamp on alcohol because of the road accidents and the problems with the trauma and just all the alcohol problems that are currently happening in South Africa. But you will see that there will always be a fight. Whenever you introduce a policy, there's always going to be, or it's going to be bad for the economy. But then we cannot have a, a system where we always have to trade public health for the economy. Um, if you think of, I don't know, mm. um, where when we grew up, we did, you, there was no KFC. There was no... Um, so like a lot of, of the food that we there were ate, no fast food outlets readily available. You had to travel an hour to go to a, a bigger city like East London to, to be able to buy from a fast food. Exactly. And there were no big supermarkets as well. So like at least vegetables, you got them from the local economy. So the minute ShopRite comes and they come and they settle and then they make Hang Lion and KFC comes and they make Hang Lion. Usis Nandi with a caravan also decides that, okay, people like fried chicken. Nami, I'll stop this, um, this hard body and yeah. make a fried version of it. So this, um, this, so then when these big companies come, in the form of investment, they compromise the local economies because now, obviously, Spanbani's Baza shop is no longer that effective because there's a small box, there's a spa, and there's a shop right who are much cheaper and bigger, and they sell more processed food mm. and more unhealthy food than the small shop that got their things mostly from the farms. So it's changes that need to be done to the whole system that you don't necessarily that like it's it's not an either or so you can by saying okay no we have enough KFCs now in Mtata you are not just like restricting 
you are not restricting investment into Mtata, but you are working with the local economy as well because okay, see when they come in Mtata, they come with their own potatoes, with their own chickens. It does they're not for the taking local. from the local uh, agricultural sectors that have been there for so many years, but now they're going to die out because these um, private sector uh, retail stores are bringing in with their own suppliers. They're not necessarily using their online suppliers, which is uh, could be a negative to the local economies of the smaller the local economy as well. Yes, so they're not only bringing junk food into the communities, <laughs> but they're also changing how communities eat because people like I there was there used to be one type of fried chicken KFC. Like now, there's so many fried chickens. There's there's there so was, many like, the, <laughs> there's so many Yeah, from cheapest to the most expensive because once you bring it then they ch everything changes to compete with that mm -hmm. and so then all all the all the they do is provide jobs but then they don't partner with local businesses to say okay mm -hmm. uh i'll get my letters from that village and i will get my potatoes from Spanbani and I'll get chickens. No, it doesn't work like that. So these are not sustainable. On that note, Yandi, it was very good to chat to you. I learned a lot and I know that the listeners also have taken some very valuable information from our conversation right now. So if we want to continue following your research content, where should we go? Uh, um, okay, I'm on Twitter um, with... <laughs> My name, Wainanga, I share a lot of my research there. And then also I'm on ResearchGate, which is my name and surname, Yandisa Nangashe. And I'm on LinkedIn. Also, like I'm everywhere just with my name and surname. But I mostly share my research on, um, on ResearchGate and on Twitter. Okay, I will share the details and maybe some people are struggling to spell those NGQA but I will share them on my Instagram page and people can be able to follow and see where to look up. You said uh, ResearchGate. ResearchGate, yes. Okay, I will share so the information. So thank you and good evening to you because uh, you are about to go to bed right now. Yeah, I'm about to go to bed, it's midnight now. Um, and um, <laughs> yeah, it was a very interesting chat. Thank you so much, you. bye. All right, bye. Uh, the time now is 13 minutes before the hour of 4 o'clock. That was Dr. Yan Nisangangashe framing the impact of COVID-19. And we were talking about the impact it has on food regulations and the impact it had on how we are behaving during this period in terms of uh, what are we putting in our bodies and what can be done better in order to be able to still preserve the health of those who are immunocompromised. And what uh, most important she was mentioning is that uh, immunocompromise is extending to also non-communicable diseases such as uh, diabetes and hypertension. Right now, we will move on to the next song and we will continue with the rest of the show. So stay tuned and when we're back, there's still more to talk about. <laughs> 